It talked about polar bears. It didn't make it immediate. And it didn't talk about and centre the struggles of people in the global south. Remember that it's not just about going, yay, solar panels. (laughs) Welcome to a very special New Economics Foundation podcast. I'm Dave Powell, Environment Lead at the New Economics Foundation. And today we're going to be talking about perhaps the biggest and most important question facing humanity, climate change. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. We are close to the tipping point where global warming becomes irreversible. The worst projections of what an out-of-control climate could do to our planet are terrifying. The science is clear that we've got to cut emissions starting now very quickly indeed. And while the Paris Agreement on Climate Change commits world leaders to keeping temperature rises to no more than two degrees, ideally less, can we really sit back and wait for politicians to do it all for us? One of the things I love also and what inspires me is that the solutions to the climate crisis are the solutions to tackling inequality in the world. And it's vitally important, I think, that we do not have lots of Elon Musks and Richard Branson's who just tell us what to do. So to talk about this rather hefty topic, we've been joined by Assad Roman, who's the Executive Director at War on Want, and Alice Bell, Director of Communications at 1010. Welcome to you both. Hi. Hello. Right, so, formal bit out of the way. Uh, thanks for coming in. So you guys are both passionate about climate change. Uh, there's kind of clues in the stuff that you've done. I thought it'd be really good to start just so that people can get a sense of, of you and what angers and excites you. Alice, what is it about climate change that gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> it's one of those things where it's the enormity of it. Um, so I'm always, I always give really rubbish answers to this. I think the thing that got me interested in it was I realised that all the other things I wanted to be able to tackle, like economic justice, like racism, like sexism, or other things like housing or crime, loads of different issues like that will just be made so much harder because of climate change. Um, But then I think there's also something about it in itself that just sort of was what drew me in and made me obsessed with it in that it is such a massive problem that we really need to, we really need to get a wiggle on. We really need to, to start sorting things soon. Uh, There's a real urgency about that. And then allied to that also, it'll involve changing our lives quite a lot to be able to tackle it. And that scares me almost as much as us not doing anything about it, is that the world that we build in order to tackle climate change will be one that isn't this beautiful hippie utopia that is often described when we talk about tackling climate change. It'll actually be one which puts a lot more power in the hands of people who frankly shouldn't have power and will actually drive more inequality. And so it's it's a really strong need to do something about it, but to make sure that when we do something about it, it is a just transition and it, we, we take this opportunity to build a better world. Okay, so Asad, yeah, what, what, what's your, what keeps your heart beating on climate change? I always say, I suppose, when I'm asked that question, I'm a reluctant environmentalist. My, my engagement in climate was never, ever from an environmental background. It came because I was an anti-racist activist, an activist around global justice issues. And so, very similar to Alice, you look at the issue and you say, yes, it fans all the inequalities in the world. Uh, It makes the world I want much harder and it entrenches power. But at the same time, what really got me was the complicity of what I would call the liberal intelligentsia and the climate and the environment movement, who I felt were complicit in 
the ongoing climate impacts that were happening around the world, the sense of lack of urgency, the lack of the perspective of those people on the front line made me uh, passionate and made me want to engage, uh, both because of the issue, but also because I thought it was fundamentally the, the movement needed to change. And so has, do you think, has the movement changed? I mean, is that something that you see as happening or are the environmental movements still uh, ignoring the worst impacts, do you think? I think there's an element of the environment movement that has, has shifted. I think the fact that there are more now conversations about decolonizing the movement, reframing environmentalism, etc. You've seen that. I think that's a real step forward. It wasn't that wasn't the case when I first got involved in in climate. So that's definitely a step forward. But the reality is, as we saw this year, for example, the national lobby on on from Stop Climate Chaos, right? And you see that consistently, 11 million people, notionally members of this broad alliance, and it's still timid, it still refuses to tell the truth about climate, it still refuses to make the demands that need to be made, and it still makes calls for empty, empty demands like mm. take action on climate, which absolutely everybody can sign up to and means nothing. Well, then, So, okay, so climate change is, I mean, Alice, you talked about this in, in passing, and you've, it's this massive, massive thing, right? So it kind of, it, it's, it's huge, it's going to affect everything. And something that I've often wondered, and there's been a debate in the last uh, month or so about this, Due to so, this guy wrote a piece in the New Yorker magazine, basically saying you think it's bad, you haven't even remotely understood how bad it is, and a lot of people reacted to that, saying, "Oh, you can't scare people, you can't make it." You know, you were talking about timidity. I say, "You can't, you can't scare people." So, would you, Alice, do we need to scare people? You're a communications expert. How how do we get people to act if we don't scare them? We can't just have fear. People will not be able to be sustained by fear itself. Just like I think. One of the things that sustains me often is anger on this, but if it's not enough. I need a more diverse diet of emotions to be able to get through this. Um, and so the organisation that I work for, 1010, was founded, kind of one of our founding principles is people need some hope alongside all the other things too. That's not to say that hope is the only thing that we should get at all. It sits in an ecosystem where we should have multiple different emotions. Um, but because so because we do this work on hope, we did some polling recently to see whether the public, UK public, feel hopeful about climate change. And honestly, we were a little bit taken back by how many people said they felt hopeful about climate change. I was like, well, I'm really not sure you should be. <laughs> and there was some, oh, ter terrible. Actually, actually, it's terrible. Don't well, I mean, there was yeah. also there was a big European study. It was much bigger than the bit of polling that we did. A beautiful bit of work from University of Cardiff comparing Germany and France and Britain, and it was really really interesting to look at the differences in attitudes in these countries. And, and again. It said that British people are reasonably hopeful. And I thought, well, they probably should be a little bit less hopeful. Um, so I, I think fear should definitely be, I think a lot of us should be a lot scared, more scared. That's not to say that that's all we should feel, but yeah, I think we should feel scared is bad. So when I read that article and I saw the comments and the debate that was going on, should you f make people scared? I always, I, the first question that came to my mind was, scary for who? So is it scary just because people in the global north are suddenly reading that? Because it's been scary for people in the global south, the realities of killer floods and droughts. So I think it's also about when we're saying telling the truth to who, right? Giving hope to who. And I think that really depends on where you are within the climate movement, where you are in the world and where you are in terms of facing impacts. So yes, I'm not surprised that people remain hopeful about climate in the north because to some extent they are not the ones being impacted to the same extent as we know as the people in the global south so for them the mantra of we'll take in action it's going to happen it's all smooth people have bought into it because actually civil society governments ngos we've all 
but we've all we've all framed climate in that way and we've sold it to people and we sold it selling people a lie yeah, I agree with that. That's a really good point. And I'd also say that we should, one of the things when people talk about hope and fear, they think about something in the future. And um, we should remember that for a lot of people, climate change is not something in the future, it is now. And that includes people in the in the global north. That includes a lot of people in America, a lot of, of less rich people in America. And one of the things that people need to appreciate when they're thinking about climate change is this is happening now and recognise when it is happening. But this is the thing, I mean, I'm going to pick you up, I said, on something you just said that the uh, people are giving sort of this sense of just take this action, you know, click on what's it, clicktivism, you know, click this thing, sign this petition, and it's all it's all sorted. So, what power do we have though? Seven billion of us, a global climate system. What power does any one of us really have to do anything about climate change other than sign a petition here or there? But we, I think, we have much, much more power. I think we have to first of all look through back through history and recognise that all great social transformations happened because. People made them happen. We have power. We have agency. We have to look and say, well, how does that power be? Is How is that power expressed? Now, the problem is when you tell people that their power is expressed by simply changing light bulbs or simply being ethical shoppers and that will be enough or simply signing a petition and that will be enough. That presupposes that governments, companies act rationally if there was enough pressure, if the science was made available to them and that that we'd see this transformation. And it fundamentally doesn't understand that actually this is a battle about power between those who've got power at the moment who are making profit from this and those people who don't have power. So we have to really get to the question of theory of change of how do we build the movement that will transform and deliver us the solution. And I think that's a very different question than the what are the tactics we're using to engage people. Although I would agree with a lot of that, I pick you, I just... Uh... There's a thing, light bulbs get a bad rap. And I think we should appreciate that changing a light bulb can be a first step for someone. And it's a good reminder, actually, light bulbs are much more than a lot of other things because you turn the light bulb on and off regularly. And if people think that by changing their light bulb, they've solved climate change, that is a terrible, terrible thing. And there is a lot of reasons why people criticise campaigns which are just change a light bulb. And they rightly criticise that. And they rightly criticise it for many reasons that Asas just described. But at the same time, I don't think we should throw out some of those things with alongside our, you know, we, don't, we shouldn't throw out light bulbs along with neoliberalism. There is... Um, <laughs> Um, and we should appreciate that power, because I completely agree it's about power, but the way in which we change power involves lots of different things, which include culture and people shifting stuff. And like food is a really good example about that. There's a lot of stuff about, oh, give up meat and then you can save the planet. No, you've got, you've got to do so many other things than just give up meat. But at the same time, food can be a very powerful way of bringing people together and creating conversations. So it's not just about individually saying, I'm going to give up meat. It's more about thinking about how you could maybe have a, have a meal where you cook a plant-based diet and you talk about climate change alongside eating food um so I, I agree with that movement building but yeah when we're thinking about how we build this movement we have to appreciate that sometimes there are consumer interactions lifestyle choices things like that which will play a part in kind of the cultural and social work that we need to do in order to do the political work so i i, I not disagreeing with you so in terms of some elements in terms of that but i would say it's the question of how you construct the movement and the problem is for majority of civil society, as I would see it, it, particularly in the North, they've constructed it first by starting at the soft point. And I would ask the key question, when you call a mobilisation around climate change in this country, what is the greatest number of people that you can put on the streets? And I would say it's a maximum and the high we've seen about 30,000 people, which is absolutely incredible when you talk about the millions of members of NGOs and civil society organisations, the amount of money that organisation spreads. So the question then is, why are we not able to mobilise people? And I would say that's because actually we've not won 
that's not been the purpose. So we've not prioritized movement building. We've not prioritized that. Actually, you don't need 100% of people. You don't need the Daily Mail on, on side here. You need, as we know, social science tells us, you need between, some people say 10 to 15% maximum. Some people say you need only 3.5% of the population to really commit to something, to be able to trigger a broader transformation. We haven't even built that 3.5%. So that's where I would say, if it's a question about resources, time and capacity, which do you prioritise first? Is it the light bulb or is it building the movement? Well, I'd like to agree with you on the point about whether we start small and work our way up from that because there's not necessarily much evidence to suggest that that works even there's loads of NGOs and behavioral change people who will say start with the little things don't scare people you know hey people it's just a little thing and then you can build yourself up uh, and we don't know that that necessarily works there's a really good research project at the University of Cardiff at the moment uh, examining what we know about behavioral change and climate change um, and climate ch well, ch lifestyle changes is what they're focusing on. They would say there's not much evidence to suggest necessarily that by starting small, you can build up. Equally, there isn't necessarily much evidence to suggest that by starting big, you can keep going. There's a bit of a knowledge gap there, but I'd certainly challenge the idea and agree with you that we shouldn't necessarily assume that everyone should be timid in terms of their starting points. But here's the thing. I mean, I've thought about this a lot and I don't know the answer to that, which is why you guys are here. Hello, guys. We're always told how massively urgent everything is. We're talking hugely, hugely urgent. We all know that, right? So isn't it all of this stuff about building power is fine. Why do we, why do we need to build power for anyway? Isn't it just about like, Elon Musk building loads of electric cars and, all, and just solar, all the prices of solar coming down and politicians meeting in Paris and signing up with things? Isn't that enough? Why, why are we even talking about empowering people to do something? Well, because the reality is it doesn't work and it's not uh, enough to prevent absolutely catastrophic climate change. Now, of course, that depends very much on where you stand in the world, right? Whether you stand in the world and celebrate Paris Agreement because it had targets that will lead to a warming of 3.4 degrees warming up to seven, or whether you stand in the global south and say, what's there to celebrate in that agreement? But I think there's a fundamental problem if you state, but going back to the behavioural question as well, which is that NGOs decided when they looked at climate change, they said, this is an issue that simply is about advocacy. That if we have enough powerful advocacy with citizens amplifying that, Governments will act rationally and we'll have this transformation. And in that, so they decided to depoliticise climate. If you look at how climate is talked about, it is totally an apolitical issue. Where actually, where if they'd have understood that actually climate change required a movement, a political movement, they would have reframed it as a justice movement because they know that there's lots of behavioural and lots of studies that tell you if you engage people on justice issues, they're more likely to stay with you. They're transformational. They change people's behaviour as well. But they're also a, a, a good way of connecting both the north and the south. If we'd have done that... I think we would have been in a very, very different situation to where we were in terms of the Paris Agreement. And the, and the key question is, why don't we have enough power? After 30 years of NGOs campaigning, spending millions and millions of pounds, why do we consistently still not have power? And why is the climate movement so weak? And I would put that at the feet of the climate movement and say, it talked about polar bears. It talked about climate was something that was going to affect your children or your grandchildren. It didn't make it immediate and it didn't talk about and centre the struggles of people in the global south. So all of it simply became about what our lived experience was. And I think those were all mistakes. I would 100% agree with that. But obviously... <laughs> <laughs> it's not what you're supposed to do. But I, but I can add something else, pick something else 
up uh, you said Dave was about Elon Musk and technology and I think it's really dangerous that we think of technology as something apolitical because yeah technology has a huge amount of power it's going to change things one of the things that it's really important that we we do when we're thinking about the future we're going to build to be able to tackle climate change is think about how we're going to use technology and in that remember that it's not just about going yay solar panels although I admit I'm quite guilty about doing that myself it is um <laughs> it's not just about liking the technology because that's just the first step. It's about appreciating that technology will only have this power because of the ways in which it will run through culture and society and politics. And so, and it will be shaped by all those things. So it will be different. The ways in which we use solar panels or wind turbines or whatever will be different depending on the political and cultural and social and economic context. And it's vitally important, I think, that in building this world and building new technologies that we do not have lots of Elon Musks and Richard Bransons and big, famous, rich people who just tell us what to do. I would call it like public engagement with technology and technologies that are more publicly accountable. So the key question about technology is who owns the technology, right? Yes, so yes. It's about public ownership, right? It's about people owning energy, people owning the food system. Exactly. And the key question, the problem is, if you simply see it as a technological answer, is that the inequalities of the world, the fact that 1.6 billion people don't have access to electricity, that people uh, to, 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 to uh, clean cooking and electricity, that the inequalities of the world simply remain. And all that we've done is we've switched from shell creating dirty uh, oil to shell owning our, our solar panels. And actually the reality is for the most of the people in the, in the global south, the simple issues about living a dignified life is still an ongoing struggle and the struggle against poverty. Now, the great thing about climate change and one of the things I love also and what inspires me is that the solutions to the climate crisis are the solutions to tackling inequality in the world. They're, the only way that we're going to be able to address the issue around energy poverty is people-owned energy, decentralised energy systems all around the world. The only way that you're going to be able to tackle the food crisis and tackle food emissions is agroecology, people-owned uh, food systems, the one that's practised by peasants and small farmers around the world. It'll be the end of the agribusiness, which is causing destruction. And how do you end deforestation? You give indigenous people land rights. So all the solutions are themselves transformative and they're leaders to create the world, I think, that we all want to create as well. So the question about technology is, it is only about who, who wields the technology, which is a very political question. So speaking of, speaking of politics, where are, we, where are we at now, given the UK election and Brexit and Donald Trump and all of these things, given this really fast changing, hard to read sort of terrain. What do you think that means for people doing something about climate change? Is it harder or easier than it was for people to take meaningful action on climate change uh, than maybe it was a couple of years ago? Alice? In some ways it's easier because there are more people engaged in climate change, I think. So as I said earlier, we just need a kind of core to be engaged to help move things. Um, and I think that core is potentially able to get bigger. There's a lot of people who seem to be engaged in climate change partly because they hate Donald Trump which I mean it's, there are better reasons for people to come to movement but that's one um, we'll take it we'll, uh, we'll and take I think there is become it is becoming it's not as weird as it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago or two years ago even maybe but at the same time I think you know the clock is ticking and on top of that just in a local point of view in the UK so we're just talking about people-owned energy a few years ago one of the things if someone came to me and said what I wanted to do something to tackle climate change I'd say well one of the best things you could do is start up a, a solar co-op in wherever you live and we had the means to do that and we were taking what was not necessarily a perfect policy of the feed-in tariff um, people like repowering London were finding ways to work with 
it's not because you know we sort of used to think about solar panels as something rich people had this was not the case uk was actually one of the leaders of thinking about how we could really distribute um energy ownership through through solar in particular and um you know the solar cuts just put pay to that we can't have community wind because we can't have wind in england <laughs> um and certainly at a local level in the uk policy level that i i work in um those abilities to take climate those ways in which people might have to take climate change have been severely limited in the last few years which i, I find particularly frustrating so i think the challenges of what we're seeing around the world the rise of the new right the consolidation of even sort of uh, uh, sort of new nationalisms and clearly the growing inequalities in the power of, of and the continued power of of the multinationals actually f- puts us in a very interesting moment because I think the only solution to the climate crisis is when the climate movement doesn't exist when we actually have a movement for justice which connects our different struggles and interestingly now what Donald Trump has been is able to do that march and that response that we saw after his muslim ban and is he was able to bring our movements together now that's an incredible opportunity for us suddenly to reframe our movements to move away from silos to actually start to say we have a collective fight if we win we all win and if we lose we're all losing and that suddenly brings the so- social forces that we need but it also means that we are the climate movement is no longer the preserve of white middle class or progressive people actually it's got ordinary people in because when you suddenly start to bring the trade unions or the black communities as we've seen in the united states suddenly it becomes a much more powerful movement so i would say that the movement for justice has a potential to win against the right but the climate movement by itself is doomed to failure yeah i i like that as a way of putting it. i think that puts it i i was feeling kind of I shouldn't be saying the way I was saying about people coming into the climate movement because of Donald Trump. They felt wrong to me that that is a thing that we're feeling. And I think you've articulated it very well because what I want is people being caring about climate change, but I don't want to feel like we're kind of accruing members of our team. Um, it's about like building a larger team. And yeah, I think that some of the stuff that's come out of the States in the last few months has been really inspiring. I want to ask, just to wrap up, I guess, well, this is, I know this is a stupid question. <laughs> that's why I'm going to ask it because that's what I do. What, Asa, what's the one thing if you, what, if I go home and I say, oh, I had a really interesting chat with Asad and Alice and they told me it's all complicated. What's the one thing you think people should do to take action on climate change that means something? And I'll ask, ask Alice that as well. But Asad, what do you reckon? Well, if they're the listeners to your podcast, then I would say that probably they are very engaged people. They're probably members of other NGOs and civil society organisations. So speaking to them directly, hold your organisations accountable ask why you're not telling the truth ask why you're not building the movements for power why you're not centering the struggles of black people why you're not saying black lives matter why aren't you doing those things and until our organ environment movements our climate organizations shift i don't think i think that would be the greatest transformation that we can do i'd say that know that there isn't one thing that you can do and to encourage people to start asking that question <laughs> um it's just <laughs> that's or, cheating or at least appreciate that yeah you, there are lots of different places you can start if you are the sort of person who wants to start small and work up which i think maybe some of us are or you're just in that mood today you can find things to do but know that that one thing is not going to be enough and that we are partly because there are so many things we have to do but also we have to work in so many different parts of society and the economy and politics and culture. I guess if you if you want one kind of powerful thing, I'd say talk about it. Just talking about climate change more is really helpful because it encourages more people to think about it because by talking about it unless you're talking about it to yourself, 
that would be, a, you know, a good thing. But also, I think we need all to be able to process the emotional aspects of it a bit more and come up with new ideas and ways to tackle it. And we'll do that by talking about it. Wouldn't be me if I didn't say, and of course, that was all part of overthrowing neoliberal capitalism. Yes. <laughs> so uh, that you should do tomorrow. Before, before breakfast. Or before breakfast. Before breakfast, yeah. Then, okay, nice. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today. Uh, where can uh, where can people find out Assad? If people want to hear more from you or read your stuff or overthrow neoliberalism before breakfast, uh, how can they find out how to do that? Uh, join us at War on Want, www.waronwant.org. And Alice? Yeah, we're 1010, which has got a terrible URL. We're 1010uk.org, but you could just... Actually, don't Google us, you'll... It's bad if you Google us. You can follow us at Twitter uh, at 1010 or I'm at Alice Bell. I am going to Google you immediately. Thank you both very much. This podcast has been produced by James Shield and is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. Thank you very much for listening. Listening.